Hello and welcome to the final sitcom club in this season. John and myself, Mooncat, is Ocho. Hello. So here we are at the end of a mammoth run. And based upon the number of retakes that we've already done to get to this point in the recording, <laughs> I think that we probably need a little summer break. Shall we have a quick delve into the mailbag? Yes, indeed. First of all, huge news. Bean is a carrot reveals that she owns a copy of the Ugly Dave Grey album, Grey and Spicy, Boom <laughs> Boom. It's got a huge label across it, because she sent us an image of the front cover, and it says, Uncensored! So I presume that this is all material that Ugly Dave Grey wasn't allowed to do on Blankety Blanks. And sometimes, of course, Blankety Blanks can be a little bit saucy. Is that not the story about how Terry Wogan, when he was being convinced to do Blankety Blank in the UK, he first of all saw the Australian version and thought, no, we can't do that here. And then he was convinced by seeing the American version. Which doesn't seem that much cleaner. There are actually quite a few clips on YouTube of the match game where it says banned episode, and it really isn't. It's just that there's some bits and pieces that, you know, like everything else, they're going to be trimmed these days. Mike Scott tweets us with a screen grab of a scene from Going Straight, and he says... Fletcher's early attempts at going straight mainly involved product placement regulations. Now, in this image, we've got Fletcher with a very obvious box of Kellogg's Cornflakes, except that the box has been amended so that it reads Sunshine Cornflakes. But because we've still got the little cockroach motif visible, everybody knows that it is Kellogg's. Well, there's only so much work you can do on that before you're wasting resources. I think they've just done the bare minimum to say... We are the BBC. We don't do product placement. Get off our backs. And, of course, that's actually what the caption reads that pops up during that scene. In Cooper Black. (laughs) And, of course, the obvious one that they always used to do was Heinz Baked Beans, because they could take out the lettering with a black felt-tip pen, but you've still got the distinctive motif on the front of the can. Button Moon. Be back soon. Speaking of Fletcher, I was amazed to quote Frankie Howard. The other day, I found myself with... Now, let me just think. What was it now? It was, I think at one point, the internet speed where I was for one evening was 0.03 megabits per second. So, there wasn't a lot of YouTubing going on, put it that way. And I found myself just going through the Sky TV dial. And there was the gold documentary about porridge from a few months back. Now, I have to admit that I didn't watch that at the time. I'm not really a great fan of the way that Gold do these documentaries. I find that there are too many talking heads in them for my liking, and also they don't treat the archive clips very well. They tend to zoom for free material, and it's VT. It needs all the help I can get, so it really is not particularly nice watching the stuff like that. But anyway, what the hell? I'm watching this documentary, and here's all these bits and pieces, and sort of going over the beginning of the show and how it came about and we all know the story about the seven of one and how Ronnie Barker wanted to do offline for a quid but eventually they went with porridge and so on. And then out of the blue came this little gold nugget of information that I've got to admit I'd never, never heard this before. Now Ocho, I think if I was just to say this to you, I think I know what you'd be thinking of. The narrator on the programme says, you know three series, a couple of Christmas specials the film And yet, in 2003, Ronnie Barker dusted off his Fletch attire, whatever the hell you want to call it. And of course, straight away, I'm thinking, oh, um, what do you call it? 
Life on the Box, like outside the box, whatever the hell it's called, with all the characters reprising their roles and the little glimpse of Fletcher at the end and so on. It was nothing to do with that. Did you know that in 2003, Ronnie Barker, as Fletcher, recorded a series of little audio sound bites that were played to new prisoners? It was part of this Home Office scheme, and the idea was that they needed to impart all this information about what you can expect if you've just gone into prison for the first time. But obviously this is a time-consuming process and they don't have enough staff to be able to have a one-to-one discussion to this effect with everybody who comes in. So what they had in effect was this little touchscreen palette that had like different little topics on it and each time you touch one, you get Fletcher giving you this little bit of advice and what have you. And they played some of the clips and as they said in the programme, it's the first time that any of this has been heard in public. So if you do get a chance to catch that program and I think from memory I think it's called Porridge Inside Out I think that's what it's called and it plays on goal all the time so if you just go through a week's worth of gold listings you're bound to find it somewhere but yeah that was episode one that's amazing so it really was and I feel bad now for having not watched that documentary in the first place and, and I really shouldn't now I'm going to stick with it I'm going to stick with the rest of that series and I'm going to see what our little nuggets they managed to find they had some nice interesting wee bits they had Keith Allen driving around in authentic prison van from the 1970s, the one that would have been seen in Prisoner and Escort, and he was actually driving around the areas in Wales where they filmed Prisoner and Escort, because even though it's supposed to be Cumberland, it was actually recorded in Wales. And he's saying, you know, here's the hill that Fletcher was running up overnight, New Year's Eve, whilst Barraclough is intoxicated on whiskey and what have you. All these little bits and pieces. But yeah, well worth a look. So, for all I know, actually, you might find it in the gold on-demand section on Sky or Virgin if you've got that as well. But anyway, on to the business in hand. Today, we are returning to Esmond and Larby, and we've been trailing this for ages, haven't we? Yes, it's something I wanted to do, and because it was 13 episodes and doing sixes is easier, there are timetable considerations for both of us as well when we can fit it in, committing to watch things. It just kept getting pushed back and back and back. And new shiny ideas would occur to one or the other of us as well. It's, oh, let's do this one. Let's run with this idea. But anyway, I'm kind of glad we did it after Hope It Rains because it means I get to retract something. (laughs) Because on Hope It Rains, I was saying, you know, Esmond and Larby, they've got to a certain stage in their careers and Hope It Rains seems to be them taking non-obvious routes, straying from standard sitcom structures. And I was wrong, because they're already doing that in this. It's not necessarily to call the other one groundbreaking or mind-blowing or any of these things, but it is full of things where it's like, yes, I think I know what's going to happen. No, I don't. It's like trying to read something that's written in English, but it's a version of English that has like a 40-character alphabet. So you know where you are, and then it's like, oh, whoa, 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 where am I now? It was very difficult to read there was a book I once saw called How to Read a Film, and I kind of thought, after certainly doing the sitcom club for two and a bit years, I knew how to read a sitcom, and this just kept not sneaking up on me, but wandering off on me. It doesn't feel like it's a conscious thing. And unlike what we've said before about Galton and Simpson, that they break the rules because they wrote the rules, or before the rules, This just feels like maybe it's written by people who were around at a time when television was just molten enough to not be aware of some of the structural rules that came afterwards or just the tropes. Because it doesn't feel like I'm being elbowed saying, eh, that's a surprise. Just like, oh, 
don't you do things that way? Well, so we're doing it now. For my pet dislikes, which I've mentioned occasionally, is this situation where you get, say, episode four of a series, and its principal character is going to leave and go to Australia or start a new job or some business which is going to involve them disappearing and saying cheerio to everybody and so on. And very, very occasionally you get a situation that might be, for example, that an actor's committed to another show or they've gone off to do a play or whatever it may be. So you do occasionally get something like that which does actually follow up on its storyline. But more often than not, it's like the last two minutes. It's like, oh, no, okay, status quo, everything's fine. And you already knew that because you saw the name of the cast list for the following week's episode in the Radio Times. There's none of that going on here. It was impossible <laughs> to be able to predict anything like that. And as you say, it's not in a, a swerve type sort of fashion. It's not trying to say, ah, you thought we were going down here. Well, actually, haha, look, it's like this. No, it's just this is the way that the story is going to play out. And we've got seven episodes in series one, and we've got six episodes in series two. And if it wasn't for the copyright date, then you'd actually think that it's an initial series of five episodes, followed by a second series of eight. That's an interesting thing. A while ago, Jason Hazley updated his amazing Ever Decreasing Circles blog with the question of the missing episode. Is there a missing episode of Ever Decreasing Circles? Why is the first series five? and the second series, eight. In a stunning coincidence that you could base an entire series of the X-Files around, what a terrible reference. <laughs> the other one effectively is a series of five, a series of eight, but it's broadcast as a series of five plus two, and then a series of six following on from the two from the... Oh, yes. It's just another reflection of the... Uh, oh, is that against the rules? I didn't know. I'm not going to say... Oh, do you know of any other instances? Because I can actually think of a couple of other instances of this, but it's very unusual to have a sitcom which actually changes its title sequence during its run. So let's dive in and talk about our characters. Okay, so who have we got first of all? Well, we start with someone who we've probably never, ever mentioned in the sitcom club. As you say, we've been doing this for over a couple of years now. I don't think we've ever mentioned the name Michael Didn't Gallon. we have cause to talk about lathes? Oh, we might have now. Yes, that's a point. And I went to lathes.co.uk. Yes. That's, oh, God, and there yes, was the little Goliath me. from the collection of Sir Michael Gambon. No, I do remember the lathe conversation now. So how on earth did we get onto lathes if we hadn't already introduced Michael Gambon into the conversation? Maybe it was me talking about how I'm really annoyed by boring characters in sitcoms most of the time. Or things that boring characters in sitcoms are supposed to like. I mean, there's that bit in Ever Decreasing Circles where Martin's reading a book about lampposts. And on the one hand, yes, it's isn't he a bit obsessive? On the other hand, I've never thought about lampposts. That could be really interesting. I mean, good heavens, I have a DVD documentary about 8-track cartridges. What other kind of nonsense? I mean, I've downloaded monographs on test cards. I do remember... The occasion in which I had my Volume 2 DVD of ITV Startups playing. And my brother came into the room and just sort of watched this for about three or four minutes. Just said, this is really weird. <laughs> <laughs> what, what What is this? And I even, even after I explained to him what it was and oh, these are recreations and this is like what went out at 9.25 in the morning. No, no, I'm not getting this. So that was probably how we got onto it. And Brian Bryant is a boring man. He's also 
not so much a dry run. He pretty much is Howard from Ever Decreasing Circles. There's barely any difference between them apart from the fact that he's divorced. Let me throw away something in here. Because it was interesting you say about how characters who are supposed to be boring and sitcoms sometimes annoy you. And I would agree with that. A lot of boring, in italics, characters in sitcoms are poor rip-offs of E.L. Wistie. Yes. They recite boring facts. They do so in a way which almost suggests that they know they're being boring, but it's like a self-indulgent thing that they're going to talk about this, and if you don't like this, well, so be it. Michael Gambon doesn't do this as Brian Bryant. It's all about his delivery and the fact that Sometimes we have like a little spell of self-awareness and say, you know, am I boring you and so on. But most of the time, he's just being either polite or he's just going about his business. There's never any point at which you think he's doing this to be obnoxious or anything like that at all. To me, that's why it comes across as natural, because it's just his speech pattern. It's just his way. Yes, there's one bit that I found really beautifully small. There's a bit where he's talking to the tour representative and she goes, my name's Sue. And he points at her nameplate and goes, Sue Bainbridge. It's a fantastic performance. It is. And he's got little sort of traits which you're made aware of as the series goes on, but you don't necessarily pick up on them at first. Like his briefcase, for example. I mean, later on, it's something that his opposite, Richard Briars, comments upon. But early on, even, he's got his briefcase and he's clutching onto it. It's almost like his comfort blanket, because that's where his documentation is. And before we see him with his briefcase, he's always got his documentation on him and so on. And he likes order and he's not Felix Unger. He's not off-putting in that sense. He's not trying to change anybody else. But he's just got his own way of doing things and it takes an awful lot to get him to change that. And Ralph. Mentioned on Map of the Sitcom Universe, I had decided that Tom Good, Martin Bryce and Ralph Tanner were cousins. I think I talked about this on the second ever decreasing circles. That time when they go on holiday and Martin is winning at everything. And there's the bit about, well, you saw me light the fire. When he gets overconfident, that's Ralph Tanner. I mean, again, Ralph Tanner is a standard thing, and I'm trying to think of characters who are like him, who are all hale and hearty and let me get you a drink and can we just get this out of the way? This is going to be totally spoiler-filled and we will not get upset if you choose to try and find all the episodes of the other one and watch those instead of listening to us. If you're somebody who doesn't mind spoilers, if you're somebody who doesn't mind knowing everything that's going to happen before it happens, that's fine, but we're going to drop some bombs because... Quite a lot of this turns on finding things out that we didn't know before. I'm actually going to say a strange thing for anybody to say on a podcast. Certainly something strange for a host to say on a podcast. But if you are interested to watch the show that we're talking about this week and the first series is available on DVD, you will have to go hunting for the second series because it isn't available on DVD, but it has been shown on UK Gold in the past, then I'm going to suggest you actually stop listening. Now, and bookmark this podcast, put it away somewhere safe, and then come back to it after you've seen the show. Because exactly as you say, there really isn't any point in talking about this if we're not going to basically reverse engineer the entire show. And yet it's a show that's really, really worth watching. 
it's an it should be one, famous. It should, yes, it should be on BBC Two Afternoon Classics, like so many other things. But whatever reason, it's almost like it's just slipped through the cracks a little bit. And whenever you hear Richard Briars, for example, discussed, it's always you know Tom Good, Martin Bryce, and Ralph Tanner absolutely should be in there in that trio of Richard Briars sitcom cast. It's mentioned in the reason. Comedy Connections, but it's kind of like, well, that didn't work. Made this show, and then it came and went. Well, Richard Briars himself said that he got fan mail, so to speak, whenever he played a character who wasn't very nice. And he made this point specifically about a couple of dramatic roles that he played. But even though he himself did not particularly care for Tom Good, Tom Good is still seen as a very nice, cosy sitcom character. And so, yeah, people took against it if he was playing somebody who wasn't particularly pleasant. Now, okay, if we're going to be spoilerific and so on, I might as well just jump right ahead and say this just now before we get into the detail of it. Until the last episode of the second series, I was ready to retract my statement about how Jack from On The Buses is the worst person in the second <laughs> universe. But we'll come on to that final episode in due course. As you say, we've got a really weird split. We've got five episodes of one sitcom, and then we've really got eight episodes of another one. But the first series is seven episodes. So in that first episode, Michael Gambon establishes with his initial dialogue that he is relatively new to travelling, or at least travelling by himself because he's a divorcee. And he finds himself sat in the airport bar with this chap, Ralph Tanner. How would you describe Ralph Tanner's appearance? He's trying to look like a man of the... He's trying to look like Jason King. Oh, do you know, I was just thinking that. Yes. It's like a sort of pound shop Jason King, isn't it? Yeah. And he has the whole works. He's got the tash. He's got the like, medallion and what have you. And he's got the flash suits with the wide shirt collars. And he's very loud to the point where people can't easily ignore him. So sometimes that can have its advantages because, for example, Brian is mumbling and trying to get the waiter's attention and failing. And all that Ralph is going to do is click his fingers and then waiter. Again, we've got the Martin Paul dynamic, but it's bent out of shape because Paul is Martin. Smokey <laughs> is the bender. Yeah. Part of me is wondering why is Brian initially sort of attracted to Ralph's personality because Ralph's personality is somewhat, I would say, repellent. Now, we know initially why they're thrown together because Brian being nervous in the airport is relying on Ralph's information rather too much and they end up missing the flight. So it transpires that they arrive at the hotel in Spain later than everybody else in their tour party and end up also sharing a room. So we've got a reason why they are stuck together for more than just a few minutes initially. Because if it had been that the entire tour party had all arrived at the same time, then there's less of a reason then for Brian to be interested in Ralph's demeanour. Whereas I think that if they'd all arrived at the same time, most of the pack, most of the holidaymakers initially take to Ralph rather badly. And I suspect that Brian probably wouldn't want to be the odd one out. I suspect that he wouldn't want to cause a scene or anything like that. But at the same time, Brian's got a really basic, nice decency about him. I think if he felt that Ralph was being picked on by the group that he'd stand up for him, 
I'm just thinking, is it so much a case of Brian latching on to Ralph? Ralph latches on to Brian. Brian becomes temporarily dependent on Ralph because Ralph does at least have a little bit of petter, a little bit of smooth talk. Though, of course, he, let's face it, lies to make it look like he's been more impressive than he has. But then Brian goes down to try and get some dinner and Ralph is hanging around waiting for Brian to come out trying to look all casual, trying to look like Brian's just bumped into him. He keeps telling Brian, I'm a lone wolf. Don't latch on to me. But then make sure that wherever Brian is, he's likely to bump into Ralph so that they can do something together because Ralph now has an audience. Somebody who's actually impressed by him. That's probably something of a first. Ralph might have people who are as interesting as he is in his own little world, but somebody who actually looks at him to see, wow, you're really interesting, you're fascinating believes the image that Ralph's trying to project. That's probably a very new experience for him. We don't know this at this stage, but we later find out that this is actually something of a pattern with Ralph. How sincere do you think Ralph is, though, in... He keeps saying gut Spain, finding gut Spain off the beaten track, not going where the tourists go. He tries to make out that he's been there. Actually, you know, he does mention that he was there for two weeks the previous year. says, I practically live in Spain. Oh, do Yes, I was here two weeks last year. How sincere is he in that, and how much of that is bull? I, I suspect the majority of it is bull because the one piece of evidence in the text that we've got is the final episode on holiday. They go to this restaurant, and Ralph reels off this particular meal that he recommends that Brian should have, and Brian has already spotted this in the brochure. And of course, that's obviously where Ralph's got that information from. I'm just thinking, yes, the tour of the village. And they're going out to some little village as part of a coach tour that's organised by the holiday company. And Ralph acts angry at the fact that Brian signed him up for it. And of course, you know he's going to, oh, well, I suppose I better come along. Of course, Brian hasn't signed him up for it. He's taken him at his word. So I suppose maybe that was Ralph's plan was that he was going to hang around and act like he'd been dragged into all these activities, but really he was not that guy. In that first episode, as far as plot development is concerned, I think we get the majority of the development in the first half of the episode. The second half of the episode is more the sort of payoff to the build-up, but it's self-contained. It doesn't follow on to second episode. But in episode two, we've got the introduction of the concierge, we've got the rest of the holidaymakers, and we've got this situation where we've got both Ralph and Brian's overriding personality habits on full display. So there's Ralph trying to be the centre of attention, hiring a mule to then go off. There's one little bit of like he's on his mule dressed like a flamenco dancer. But one bit was right along and he's singing O Sole Mio, which is Italian. <laughs> and this also really shows us what Brian's like as far as his kind-hearted nature. Because he just happens to see the mule by itself looking out of the coach window. And it would be so easy for someone like Brian, who doesn't want to be the centre of attention, to just look the other way. And say to himself, oh, I'm sure everything's fine. Well, I'll find out later on. But no, he actually puts himself at odds with the entire coach because he's worried about Ralph. 
Now, everybody on the coach finding Brian to be a bit of a bore and an irritation, it seemed to happen very fast, but it seemed fairly in keeping with the characterization beats. Then we have a little bit where Ralph and Brian are stuck together in this abandoned Spanish farmhouse. And that was the first weirdly surprising bit. Brian's talking about his marriage and went, no, yes, I rather liked having sex. Normal sitcom sex joke. The joke is that it was always Saturday night. But just that blank way of talking. There was no creeping up to it or sitcom euphemism. Because that probably is how Brian would talk. But then later on, so the coach has gone to the arranged village. Brian and Ralph have had to trek all the way back. And when they get back, all the people on the coach who were irritated by Brian and thought he was a bore, they went, oh, you had the right idea. How do you do that? This is only episode two and they're already impressed with Brian. Just mentions, oh, he just sort of went, wow. That just felt unusual. That the characters who found him a bore no longer found him a bore so quickly. I'm thinking in my mind about the precise structure of that episode. And I think that it's quite clever in as much as there's plot development, but there's also a comment about the type of holiday that they're on here as well. It's a coach tour, and you've got this group who've you know obviously gone out in some sort of package deal. And... For the first day or so, they're in really high spirits because they've just arrived. And this is the first excursion. So they're still in high spirits. But over the course of the day, unseen to ourselves, we only get this related later on, they found the excursion rather unsatisfactory and thought that it was a tad overpriced. And actually the whole thing was rather constricted in a way. You know, being stuck in the coach and being told where to go and when to go and so on. And... Because of that reason, that's why I think that it's not actually all that unusual that they suddenly change their mind about Brian. Because no, it's unusual in terms was... of sitcom character beats. The bore is usually always found to be a bore. A large party like that are sometimes audience stand-ins. Character does something annoying, there are a few characters there to react to it, to roll their eyes. They never then suddenly turn around and get impressed by the boring character. And it's not like there's a big revelation where it's like, oh, he's okay after all. It really is. It's like, what, you just went off by yourself. No, I went off. Yeah, but the both of you just went off. How do you do that? This is a strangely new sensation for Brian's character. People are reacting to him that way. And it's quite naturalistic, but it's also making me think another thing I said about Hope It Rains, people being the heroes of their own story. Those characters on the coach were not just there to fulfil the narrative function of getting Brian off the coach and showing that Brian is quite irritating. They've then gone and often had their own bad experience. We've picked up their story. They've been changed by it. You want to use the word character arc? I know it'll make you puke, but it's like they've had a character arc that we just didn't see. These are incidental characters, but they're the heroes of their own story. And I don't think that this is deliberate. I think it's just free-flowing when you're as good as Esmond and Larby. Right, okay, now this is going to sound odd, and in a way I'm actually going to sort of act like Ralph Tanner, or at least like Ralph Tanner's in my ear just now, because I think trying to introduce this as a concept could be foolhardy, and I might end up down a cul-de-sac. But what the hell, Ralph's telling me that I should go for it, so I'm going to go for it. (laughs) 
Right. To elaborate on this idea, what you're saying there about how you know the character is a hero of their own story. Don't know if you ever saw the sitcom version of Swiss Tony. No, but I did put Swiss Tony down in my notes because series two, Ralph. Yes, there's definite parallels. Most episodes of Swiss Tony are fairly straightforward in terms of their structure, and it's a free wall VT audience sitcom, big broad laughs, and so on. There's one episode, I think it's in the second series, which breaks all of its usual rules, and it approaches the story in a way that I've never really seen done before but like I say you know I like my sitcoms I don't do drama and what have you so you may very well be able to tell me that this is a standard sort of drama trope for example but Simon Greenall is guesting in this episode and he plays this customer of the car showroom and over the course of this half an hour the same story is told from three different perspectives in the showroom and each of them thinks that the reason that this customer keeps on coming back into the show and they think that they themselves are this sort of magnetic attraction. And each person remembers conversations in different ways. So they all play out the same, but the importance of what somebody said is twisted in somebody else's version, or the meaning is twisted, or what was like the absolute centerpiece of one person's recollection is just a complete and utter irrelevance in somebody else's. Now... I did say that I potentially was going to a dead end here, so there may be nothing. If, if, if you hear silence for the next 60 minutes, then you know that's what happened. But that makes me sort of think that our central characters in this are Ralph and Brian. So let's say, for example, that all the other holidaymakers, they saw Ralph and Brian come in, and they said, you had the right idea, Brian, going off by yourself. And, oh, yeah, Ralph, oh, you, you know the score, and what have you, you knew we shouldn't have been stuck on that coach. Now, the thing is, the rest of those characters then off-screen, off-the-page, off-text, in dialogue that was never written and didn't happen and wasn't performed, could have then said, actually, do you know what? No, they are a couple of loners. No, let's try another excursion tomorrow, that's fine. But that just that one bit of dialogue, that was the important bit for Ralph and Brian. So that's what we're going to sort of hinge on to. Whereas if the sitcom had been about the other holiday makers, and by the way, they happen to be these other two who are a bit sort of different from the pack, then the dialogue would have had a slightly different meaning. Is any of this making sense? Or if I just bloody lost? I kind of understand it, but it is kind of perpendicular to the point I was making, which is just these other characters behave in a way that is sort of inconsistent, but believable. And when you're very skilled, it is... A clever thing to achieve the idea that these characters might have a life off stage. You seen the producers? Yes, the original, not the remake, yeah. the original. Reminded me of that as well. Brian is doing exciting, interesting things for the first time in his life. And Ralph has somebody who believes he's exciting and interesting. Maybe not for the first time in his life, but it's been a hell of a long time. In the remake, in the musical, there is actually this little song between them. So it's a love song between two friends. It's just called Till Him. No one ever really knew me till him. And that's the relationship through here, I think. At least at first. Are there any bits you want to pick up on on the holiday segment? A couple of things. One is that I like the fact that the other characters around them are three-dimensional. 
because it would be again it would be very easy in a show like this to have just you know sort of walk-ons and what have you just reacting i like the fact that for example the holiday rep she's got to be cheerful and she's got to be sort of pleasant to the group but at the same time either ralph or brian are annoying her then she'll say so which seems much more realistic Oh, I've just remembered another weird bit of a character who's there for a basic narrative purpose who then reverses. Uh, Sally Jane Spencer. She's in a visual gag. Character's called Jane, you know, from... Is it Sally Jane Spencer? Yeah, it's Le- Leslie. Ralph is trying to find a girl, find some friends, find something, and sees a girl with a beach ball, and he grabs the beach ball from her, and her much taller friend grabs the beach ball from him and drags her friend away simple visual gag then later on the short girl comes up and says oh that was really funny and ralph almost gets her to bed and i guess he doesn't because he can't we're only doing so much straying from sitcom standards the other thing i was going to pick up on about the holiday episodes is that there was a point that for whatever reason i don't know why i was just sort of anticipating this throughout but it was, i was just kept on thinking at some point you know the tables are going to turn. Not even slightly, but just entirely. I thought maybe this will be a gradual thing over the course of the two series, that they'll find themselves with their relationship entirely reversed. And there was one point in that last episode in the hotel where Brian suddenly grows a pair. It's like when he's all pleased because he thinks Ralph has been able to sort out his problem with his passport. And then all of a sudden he's like calling the shots. He like answers back to the waiter and you know he's dishing out the champagne and what have you. And it's almost like he's built up now. He's a little bit sort of cocky. And I thought maybe this is something that's going to develop. Maybe this is a, a clue and that perhaps this is going to lead to a sort of change in Brian's personality over time. Now, let me think. Back to ever-decreasing circles. When Brian accidentally sets fire to his passport, isn't that after... Ralph has said to him, throw away your lumber, let your boat of life be light. Is that where he said that? I I wrote down that he said that and I didn't bother to note where exactly he said it. Because that's an ever-decreasing circles. Paul gets Martin to throw a bunch of paperwork into a fire, using that line to convince him. So would have been nice. You know there's a bit in Carry On Doctor where Frankie Howard spots one of the nurses with a bunch of daffodils and says, oh no. I saw that film. <laughs> what if Martin Brace had said that to Paul? And said, "Ah, no, no, I ain't, I ain't throwing my passport on the fire." And if just one person in the audience got it, then fantastic. So, really, one situation we have here: standard sitcom setup is the fish out of water. With Ralph, we have the fish who doesn't actually know he's out of water. More so in series two, but definitely here, he thinks he's getting away with it. He's playing a game of fake it till you make it and he thinks he's going to make it. And he's an opportunist. There's that bit where he manages to win an argument with Brian by saying, did we come on the same plane? Do we have a room like everybody else? And of course, these are because of stupid things he did. But he somehow manages to use that to convince him that, yeah, he and Brian are cut from a different cloth from the rest of the tourists. That being said, the rest of the tourists actually like Ralph when it comes to coming into the dining room and finding a buffet. They look to Brian and then they all look to Ralph and they're all having a great time. It's like a party. 
Okay, so what's the old saying? The kingdom of the blind, the one-eyed man is king. So, in their own slightly different ways, fundamentally, the other holidaymakers are all part of the pack. They go on the excursions, they do as they're told by the rep, and they don't really... They complain about things, but they never really think about doing anything other than what the itinerary says. So, having established in episode 2 that Ralph, whether he's attention-seeking or not, is going to do his own thing, then, yeah, when he walks into the room, it's like, okay, well, we know that something's going to happen now. Something different, something out of the ordinary that isn't just, you know, the norm and isn't just what's on the damn timetable is going to happen. And sometimes that can go the right way and sometimes it can't. Have we got anything interesting to say about Tufnell Park? That almost reminded me of a Simpsons. Frank Grimes, is that the character? They put in a character who would react to Homer like a normal person would react to Homer. And they bring in this guy, Tufnell Park, who looks like another Brian at first. He's out of his depth and he falls into... Why does Ralph get way, way more overconfident with Tufnell than he does with Brian? I don't know. Is that because he's like sharpened his teeth on Brian? Well, yes, I think so. I think it's because he's already had what he perceives generally a success with Brian. And so now he thinks, right, okay, this is my calling in life. You know, here's someone else that I'm going to set on the path to freedom and so on. So, yeah, I suppose that makes sense, that he'd be all puffed up and trying to... And he nearly gets killed. (laughs) Yes. By the way, I just thought, it doesn't go anywhere as far as the plot's concerned, but it's just this lovely little piece of dialogue when... I'm trying to remember what the... I can't remember what the episode was now. It was when Brian's doing his own thing, or rather he's staying in with the pack because he wants to give Ralph his space. And one of the other holiday makers is sat there by himself in the bar, and then he starts talking about gobbles. Yes! <laughs> and he's like, if you were gobbles, what order would you have done it in? And he's like, sort of reeling off, you know, when you're going to do away with yourself and the missus and the family and what have you, what order would you have fired the shots? And he's just sat there, he's quite happily talking to himself about this. This is too much even for Brian. Brian could actually engage in this conversation, but no, he's not going to. He's just going to move away. So... Did you know what was going to happen at the end of episode 5? I didn't know what was going to happen, but I was intrigued because I think I actually messaged yourself whilst I was watching that. I said, this is odd. Episode 5 out of 7 and they're all going home. Now, I thought this is going to be a bloody long flight that they're about to take that extends all the way to the end of episode 7, or we've got something a little bit different going up. And there we are, episode 6. They're back home and doing their jobs. And Ralph is desperately trying to find Brian, because after making a big show about, oh, we'll never see each other again, just ships the pass in the night, enjoy what we had, he's then determined to find the the one person who's impressed by him. But again, we find out something about Ralph's working life. He's actually quite successful. When he gets that Salesman of the Month award, there is the little smattering of applause because obviously he's not that popular, but I also got the feeling there was a little smattering of applause because he wins it every other month. Doesn't his boss call himself the Lion of the Southeast? Or And that's, again, it's a nice little trait when you get that in a sitcom which has got a bit of depth to it. You know, Quite often you have so two-dimensional characters in sitcoms where somebody is 
all successful or they're a loser or they're a nerd or whatever it is and then that's all they ever do and in the case of the perpetual loser they're just basically crap at everything and sometimes it's nice when something surprises you and it turns out actually somebody's got a skill and of course it makes absolute perfect sense for Ralph to be a sales rep because as annoying as his overbearing self is and his puffed up self importance and so on as irritating as that would be to live with or be on holiday with if you're going to see him maybe every three months for an hour at a time that could actually be quite pleasant he could be quite entertaining in small doses. And there's somebody at work who thinks he's impressive and then the secretary has to disabuse him of that. But again, there's no sense that his secretary hates him. It would have been so easy for his secretary to come and oh, hello again, Mr. Tanner. Not perfectly professional. And we find Brian works for a record company, but he works in the moribund records department. He has to ensure that every record that comes to him is definitely useless and should not be kept active and then it's destroyed, which fits in with his cartoonish boringness. I just had a horrible thought. What? Do you reckon that if it hadn't been a record company, Brian actually could have been employed by the BBC in the tape wiping (laughs) department? (laughs) On the topic of let my mind wander, is it normal, and I already know the answer to this question, the answer is no, it isn't. Is it normal that when you see a glimpse of a television set in a sitcom that you know was broadcast in 1977 and the TV set is switched off, is it normal for me to think... As if I'm saying to the sitcom character, damn it, put that TV on. You'll be watching continuity from 1977 right now. It's going out right now. Why are you not watching this? I was just thinking about a sitcom about somebody in the tape wiping department. It'd be a great end to a show that he like turns on the bulk eraser, runs it through, and then your screen starts to go snowy. <laughs> wiping the show as you're watching it. Great. <laughs> so after a bit of back and forth, Brian is even more impressed by the actually genuinely successful Ralph and he ends up becoming a sales rep with Ralph even down to potentially getting his dream job he's applied for a job after quitting at the moribund records department because of Ralph's pep talk actually I've just realized that's almost a parallel for what happens in series two episode two the odd episode Ralph persuades Brian that he's got more about him maybe than he really does. Brian ends up quitting his job in the belief that Ralph's going to get him a job after a few bumps on the road. Ralph gets him this job. Brian finds out he has been offered this position at the British Museum, but he takes the job with Ralph because he's got a friend. It's more important to him. And thus begins phase two of the other one proper. Ralph and Brian up and down the country trying to sell things. And we also have, remember with Mulberry, Series 2, Episode 1 started moments after the end of Series 1, Episode 6 or 7, whichever case it was with Mulberry. And you could just splice them together and have an hour with no big jump. Incidentally, unusual wee bit of scheduling going on here, I've just noticed, in that Episode 6 went out on the 16th of December, 77. And then it was two weeks before we actually saw the last episode in Series 1 because of the Christmas break. So again, that's unusual. Not only are we still messing about with the traditional format, but also 
the messy of traditional schedules. And episode well. one of series two does kind of feel like an episode three. Brian tries to learn the ropes and he's not that good at it. There's even a fairly traditional Bancrash punchline ending. That his first sale is not all that impressive. But we meet what Ralph's people are really like. People he meets when he's out there. That guy who comes in, the Ralphie, and they have a drink. And again, we get a guy info dumping about his life off screen. And we find out how pretty horrible he is. He's going on about this girl he met on holiday. I mean, he's what? He looks to be about 45. There's a spiritual thing. She's Italian, 18 years old. Can't remember what her name was. <laughs> and we do have a normal character who hits Ralph, the barman, Jimbo. That's quite nice, but it's, I mean, it's just when he hears Ralph's voice and we see him shrivel up inside. That's more what I would have expected from the other holiday makers, just a character who was always there to hate him. And then we get series two, episode two. What can you compare this with? Okay, now here's the thing. You'd already seen the other one a long time ago. I mean, like maybe like a year or so. And you sort of hinted to me that something's going to happen. I'm now into series two, so I'm just about to see the second episode. And bearing in mind, okay, I know that something's going to happen. And what I thought it was going to be was that I thought, like I said before, that Ralph and Brian, their characters were going to slowly evolve into each other. That's where I thought it was going to go. And I had it in mind that perhaps it'd be something like one of them would run off with the other one's partner or something like that. I thought it was going to be something, you know, just some plot twist, you know, or, or perhaps they were going to find out that they were actually related or something like that. And I think I actually, I messaged you whilst I was starting to, to watch this episode and I said something like, oh, Leslie Dwyer, he's a bit cheerful in this, isn't he? Because <laughs> I'd just seen him in, what was it called? Marilyn being, you know, a miserable old sod. I, I actually started watching this episode and thinking, you shouldn't really get a filler episode in, in the second slot of the series, but this is already feeling like a sort of episode three or an episode five. It's like they're going to turn up and they're, they're going to go to the place where Ralph was evacuated during the war. And I thought, yeah, this is just screaming filler. That'll be a nice wee half an hour. Not going to be any advancement of anything plot-wise. And meh. Oh, boy. And what can we say about this? Ralph goes back to the village he was evacuated to in the war and expects people to be happy to see him, and they're not. And Brian has to go back and find out why. At what point did he send me that I am saying, blimey, was it after the episode that had finished? That was right at the end, yeah. Oh, right, not right at the end. point where they got to the graveyard. No, because that surprised me so much that I thought, is someone else going to turn up in the last 30 seconds? Is it going to be like he turns around and says, yes, I knew. They told you that I didn't know, didn't they? Well, I knew all the time. So I thought, oh God, what's going to happen now? Is this going to go all dark? Is there not going to be a studio audience next week? Is it all going to be in 60 minutes? So yes, millimeter? what happens is, I mean, we have the standard thing. It's a village out in the country. Everybody keeps themselves themselves, goes quiet in a pub. They don't like strangers. I guess you can say that that whole thing of three-dimensional characterization for supporting characters doesn't really happen here. What I couldn't figure out, just as a quick aside, they'd managed to make Michael Ripper look like a young man being made up to look like an old man. <laughs> he looked like David Jason playing yes. one of those roles in the early 1970s. Because he was clearly supposed to be playing somebody who was an adult at the time it happened, so it's a matter of making a, what, a 50-year-old man try and look 90. So they all go about how they hate Ralph, and he did summit, 
What did he do? Summit! And they bring out Michael Ripper, Astukely, and he sort of says, Ah, Ralph Tenner, may he rot in hell! I won't forget what he did, and Brian still doesn't find out. And he goes to the local church and asks the vicar. And Ralph and the little boy he was staying with used to pretend to fly and jumped off sideboards and chairs. And after Ralph had been evacuated back, this boy still believed he could fly and threw himself off the top of a quarry. Comedy! And it's an odd little parallel in some ways with what might happen to Brian. In a more figurative sense, Ralph is talking up. So it's like he keeps latching on to people. Well, I mean, one thing we haven't mentioned is the theme tune for this thing. (laughs) Because it sounds like it should be with bouquet of barbed wire. It actually reminded me a little bit of Fallen Rise of Reginald Perrin. But Fallen Rise of Reginald Perrin has this forward momentum. It is slightly unusual for a sitcom. But not really unusual for a sitcom because the Fallen Rise of Reginald Perrin is about craziness. And this is about a couple of lonely men who find each other and get in scripts. And it has a theme tune that's very, very mournful. Now, this is the only one that I've got any kind of issue with as far as the plot is concerned. Because after this revelation, I don't know if we actually made it clear in the discussion there, but Ralph doesn't know. Because as you said, this happened a couple of months after Ralph moved away and nobody's ever told him. So he's in the dark as to why all the locals are acting the way that they are. When that episode concludes, and there's Ralph actually, by chance, he's actually found the quarry and he's reminiscing and so on. Brian just wants to get the hell away from him. He's thinking, I'm going to end up going down the same path. This is never referred to again. So next week, Brian is still slightly in awe of Ralph as he's been before. He does make it clear in his conversation with the vicar that he doesn't feel it can be really entirely held against Ralph. So I guess he just filed it away as youthful hijinks. We do actually at least see on screen that Brian has processed it and has decided it doesn't change his relationship with Ralph. It's not necessarily something that's like it would have to. So it's odd and it is i suppose a bit functional of let's just pretend this never happened but there is at least a moderate bit of hand waving i can kind of believe that things would return back to normal how would it have been if this had been the last episode of the series and instead of brian getting into the car he just bolts just runs off i thought you meant instead of getting into the car he just gives ralph a good kick and when he's looking over the quarry it would certainly sour any repeat viewing, wouldn't it? So we're sort of back on track a little bit when it comes to the following episode. And this is more what I expected. The Brian has dinner with the holiday rep and Ralph goes looking for a girl episode to end like, which is nothing happens and Ralph gets it held against him for it not happening. I suppose it's just maybe a little musing on old age. Brian is quite happy to become middle-aged and is happy to be middle-aged. He's happy to be going into old age. He's quite comfortable at the place they're staying at. Ralph wants to go out and find a disco and chat up two girls half his age and is frustrated and looks down on the woman who's in charge of the 
place they're staying and then finds out that she had an interesting life. Again, she was the heroine of her own story. Ralph is chatting to this old lady who runs this place where people just sort of sit in the lounge and drink cocoa and play checkers. How do they play chess? I can't remember that bit. And she mentions that she used to live in Paris and used to live in, with a bullfight. And he goes, oh, Martin's not a Spanish name. So, oh, no, we weren't married, we were lovers. It's not the most original thing, finding out that somebody you thought was boring is a bit more interesting. But because it's a third character introduced into the story of Ralph and Brian. And the thing is, it doesn't really feel phony because it's not like boring person has suddenly got a really, really interesting backstory. It's that everyone, everyone has a tale to tell. And yet Ralph goes through life assuming that everybody else is boring. So he's really always going to be surprised by anybody because he's sort of got that blinkered attitude about all people. And so we have that bit where Ralph opens up to Mrs. Martin and she brings him a cup of cocoa and she kind of mothers him. And I think that's the beginning of the shift in personalities between Brian and Ralph. Again, it's a standard term. So Brian is mad at Ralph the following morning because he had a woman in his room. He didn't hear what was said, but he thinks Ralph has done what he set out to do and he's getting the blame for something that didn't really happen. That's normal. But because of the last episode and what happens in the third series, oh no, there isn't one, but we kind of know what's going to happen. Because of that, this is actually forward momentum just that moment when Ralph opens up it's the beginning of the change I don't really have much to say about the one where they irritate a bunch of Hell's Angels I guess we do have this bit where Brian is pushing against Ralph Brian is beginning to grow even more of a pair but then things work out Ralph does seem to lead a charmed life um, actually what happens because doesn't Brian say well that's it I'm sticking with you we find out this little superstition he has about saying hello hello first cow of the day and he says it and he says that's the last time I'm going to say it because I'm sticking with you but doesn't he push after him towards the end of the episode it doesn't stick does it even within the half hour well that one did feel more like a sort of filler episode even though it was episode 4 but episode 5 episode 5 is an odd one because it feels like a little fantasy Last week we're talking about likelihoods. Oh, well, it's a couple of men writing the women. Normally we don't say this. We don't have that criticism. I mean, we never had that criticism in ever-decreasing circles. Oh, don't forget, Anne is being written by men. This one, it was really hard to pin down where the point of view was. There's a couple of ways of looking at this. To a certain extent, you can say, again, this is actually Miss Blakeney's story. She's a buyer... She's a successful businesswoman and she's sick of dealing with sales reps because they all give her the same patter. They all treat her like a sex object or like a pretty little thing to have her head turned. And sure enough, Ralph does the same. Everybody apparently who she's seen that day has brought her flowers and chocolates and complimented on her how good she looks. It almost seemed exaggerated, but you know what? I, th I guess probably a lot of guys did talk that way to women in business. Don't you worry, your pretty little heads. A lot of numbers you probably wouldn't understand. Yeah, and Ralph is really being obnoxious. And he's really it's really obnoxious, it but I bet it's not as exaggerated as we might like to think. And of course, what happens is Brian is completely businesslike and blank, and she really responds to that. He says something, and she went, Buying! You're talking about buying! <laughs> oh, yes. And 
how do you read the ending? There's a couple of ways of reading it. There's what do you say? I misread how this was going to end. I was all sort of ready to think, okay, I know that Brian is awkward and shy and doesn't quite pick up on sort of obvious signs and things like this, but this is going too far. The idea that he's just going to think that when the buyer, Miss Blakeney, goes into the bedroom and he says to her, are you are you coming back out here? She says, no. Are you, are you going to bed, are you? And she says, yes. And I thought that he was just going to take that as his cue to sneak out. It was going to say, oh, I, I presume that the meeting is over and done with then, so I'm just going to leave and go back to the hotel. I thought, no, he can't be that slow. Come on. But no, he doesn't. <laughs> no, no. It's one of those little sort of Esmond and Larby sort of twists where it's like, well, obviously they're not. Hang on, they are. They're going to they're gonna do that. Yes. And that's exactly what happened. So on the one hand, you've got this odd little twist on things that in the morning he feels guilty and he feels like he was being used as a sex object as part of business. On the other hand, you could say that her reaction is a little bit, well, you've got to pay them some compliments. She starts to worry about the fact that Bride is not flattering her. In a worse work, you could almost read it, well, you know, they like it really. That was nicely done, actually, because it was her secretary briefly turning up at the hotel who actually put that idea into her mind and said, oh, he hasn't tried to make a pass at me or anything. I just said, and you're okay with that, are you? So it wasn't as if yes, that's the true. flash had just occurred to her. It was like, you know, the idea was suggested to her and that's when she then started thinking, hmm, okay. God, Ralph's but, horrible. Oh, God, yes. He lies to Brian. He tells her that Miss Blakeney's a lesbian. He doesn't care for that word, of course. No. But, uh, but let's Brian... face it, some of the previous stuff, it wouldn't be surprising if they just decided to go so on the nose. But that's doubly scummy. It's scummy to Brian, don't get ideas, mate, and he's lying about a woman because he's jumped to this conclusion because she didn't find him attractive. Oh no, something did happen in episode four that's worth mentioning. So there's this bit where Ralph get snotty with a guy down the pub, played by Neil McCarthy, who you would recognise if you saw him. Oh, yeah, I, I recognise him No, from... I don't I mean, I mean, I'm addressing the listener. Oh, I beg your pardon. Yes, no, I recognise him from Step and Sun right again, amongst other things. And so it's kind of like, right, outside, and once he gets outside, please don't hurt me, please don't... But then goes back in and tells Brian that uh, he sorted him out. And then Brian finds out that he didn't sort him out. Neil McCarthy sticks a volivon on Ralph's nose. Nice little bit of Leo McCaryism, because it doesn't ascend. <laughs> and Brian says, somebody at this table is a blowhard. So that is a little bit of forward movement in the relationship, because he backs down and then unbacks down. We do have the, I'm sticking with you, but a, sh a slight shift from there. Things have changed, but that's a really interesting point in the whole series, that Brian would say that. You just reminded me, that's another plot where I thought that it was going to go a certain way and didn't. There was not really any way to see what actually did happen because that was completely out of the blue. But what I thought was going to take place was that Brian was going to say, hey up Ralph, they're here, the Hells Angels are back outside and that he'd eventually get Ralph to say, look I admit it I was afraid for myself and then it turned out that Brian was actually having them on, and the Hells Angels weren't outside. That's what I thought was going to happen. But, again, I was surprised. Episode 
six. The Eric Morris moment, I think we can call that. Now, I'll just remind you that, that I did say earlier on that up until this episode, I had a new worst person in the world above Jack and anybody else that we might have compared to Jack over the last two and a half years. And yeah, Ralph had absolutely no redeeming qualities whatsoever. But yeah, this last episode put things into well more context. So they've finished their jaunt and they're back home. And Brian is happy to be back home and talks to his books. All right, lads? And gives them a thumbs up. (laughs) Ralph kind of wants to keep going and let's go to France. Brian turns him down and Ralph goes back home and we see Ralph's home life. It kind of reminded me of Monty Python's worst family in Britain. (laughs) Yes, yeah. Actually, again, I was slightly surprised by this. I thought that it was going to be a sort of... Actually, I was just about to say something there, and then I realised that you haven't seen what I was about to say, and that would spoil it, so I won't say that. I'll say instead that I thought that it was going to be like Ralph was John Alderton in the upchat line. I thought, basically, he was going to be homeless. I thought that's where it was going, because, you know, he was like you know, a salesman, he's always on the road and what have you, and I thought, that's possibly what it is. He's just like, he's always kipping down in some hotel or something like that, and that that's why he doesn't want to give Brian his address, because effectively he hasn't got one. So he goes home, he lives with his family, and his parents are horrendous. Max Wall and Gretchen Franklin, very quick on the emotional blackmail, actually threatening to commit suicide at one point, just because he's a bit snappy with them. It turns out he buys them things, he tries to buy their affectionate fails, he bought them an expensive hi-fi system and saw it in a pawn shop the following day. It's some peculiar characteristic because it's like they didn't ask him for the money. So you get that sense. He's not just buying them things. They're just seeing stuff and wanting it. And then when they get it, don't want. Again, it's a little characteristic that you can draw more out of. They're not just opening his wallet. They have some strange acquisitive drive that is immediately dissipated as soon as they get the thing they want. I've just twigged about something. I didn't even pick up on this at the time and it might be that even then i may be wrong but okay i don't know if you noticed this yourself end of the episode where they're staying at the b&b and he says to lolly Bores about how he nearly went up the aisle once yes and then he was jilted by his bride because his bride ran off with his brother now in the last episode it turns out that there's a reference to a brother, is it in New Zealand, I think they say? Yes, and how he's so much better because he sends them a Christmas card every year. Yeah, and he's got wife and kids to support as well. Are they talking about the same brother? Now, that isn't made very, very obviously clear, so it might not be, but that really would be bloody nasty if they were rubbing that in, if they were actually talking about his brother as if he was the apple of their eye, and that's the circumstances under which he's now got a family and what have you. That'd be horrible. I mean, on the one hand, it's a fairly unsurprising thing for a blustering character to have a horrible home life. But they're cartoonish. There's a pregnant woman who's crying all the time, two children fighting, shouting, I'll knife you in the chest. No, I'll knife you in the chest. And Larry! Hey! (laughs) Yes, indeed. Doug Fisher for A Man About the House has two lines. I've got a theory about this. The second series we were watching recordings 
from UK Gold because this has not been released on DVD. And this was in the era when UK Gold was cutting programs to fit them to a half an hour slot with commercials. So all the episodes that we saw in Series 2, they're all sort of four minutes shorter than they should have been. I wonder if Doug Fisher had more lines. Oh my goodness, there's an extra four minutes per episode? This comes out in DVD, we'll have to start again because there's probably wild revelations or innocuous lines that we can spin universes out of. Oh yes. And there is actually this one point, isn't there, where you get the impression that there's been an edit, and I don't know if it's an edit for modern day sensibilities. By modern day, I mean sort of Judging by the recording, I think we're talking about sort of 1993, 1994, thereabouts. And they didn't really go in for the kind of edits that we tend to see nowadays back then, so I suspect that it's just a timing edit. But there's one point where when Brian's popped round and there's uh, a lady of... What's the most polite way that I can say this? Enormous personal confidence in her attractiveness. Yes, we'll go with that. And Brian's told... Oh, you're you're in there, son. Oh, what? She's a right little raver. And then there's a huge laugh from the audience and also the rest of the family as well, implying that something else has been said, but we (laughs) didn't get to hear what it was. Ralph had been turned down by Brian for a trip to France. His horrible, horrible parents persuade him to take them. Where is it? Canvey Island? Yes, that's right. Yeah. And by this point, it's like it's supposed to be initially... It was going to be just the three of them. The three like of the, yeah, because they actually said the three of us, don't yeah. they? And then it turns out that he's, he's taking the entire family. Hey, you know when he said he went to Spain for two weeks the previous year? What do you think? All of them together? Rather than this being Ralph's first trip to Spain, this is his first trip to Spain solo? It could be. Yes, it could be. It's strange when you get to the last episode of... A series, and then you immediately want to revisit the very first one to do a, a precise comparison, but that's just sort of the way that I feel about this. It's like I can't really now imagine the circumstances in which Ralph would have been able to say to the family, I'm going to Spain by myself for a fortnight, because I think that they would have laid on the emotional blackmail there and then until he'd agreed Maybe to Maybe just lie to them, make them. it look like. That's what I'm thinking. He mentions yeah. at one yeah. point about how flexible the holidays are when you're rep and he says you can take Christmas whenever you like I took mine in August last year yes yes so maybe he just lied and made it look like it was a work thing maybe they don't know that he has was it six weeks holiday a year true yes yeah that's possible it's easy to say to yourself look he's obviously earning a good bit of money and what have you is successful why doesn't he sort of just get out there and, and what have you but of course you know we've seen the kind of emotional blackmail that the the family engages in so there's probably a bit of the sort of Albert and Harold Stepton going on here. Yes, yes, there was that as well. Yeah, definite Stepton some vibe. So as you've heard, Brian ends up turning up at Ralph's house, being sent there on an errand by work, because Ralph had never even told Brian where he lived. But work called. And they end up in the pub together, and Ralph just knows that the whole edifice has come crumbling down. Brian's seen his family, so he knows that a good chunk of it is lies, and the caravan is ready to take the family to Canvey Island. And then Brian says, well, okay, let's go to France. I know it's maybe stating the theme of the show, or the theme of what the third series is going to be like, but Ralph actually says, have you become me or have I become you? And they unhitch the caravan, jump in the car and drive off. And his parents look out and go, blimey! The end credits kick in and there isn't any more. <laughs> yes. And given the sort of twists and turns that we'd had, 
by that point, I was sort of ready for the wash to happen. I actually thought that Ralph was just going to give in. To, you mean that yeah. the end might be that Brian goes off to France by himself, or we found out that Brian has outgrown his need for Ralph, and Ralph has to return to the gaping moor. Yeah, I mean, if that had happened, then I would have thought, well, that's clearly an anticipation, in anticipation of a third series, which then didn't happen, which is then going to see a sort of happier ending. But, yeah, it wouldn't have surprised me if that had been another case. But So the reason I got hold of the other one was I heard somebody describe it as a sitcom with, I think, like the most inexplicable ending ever, and I had to find out what this was. And I have since watching it seen people who refer to the ending as some sort of big rug pull. But to me, like Mulberry, the ending seems to be come back for series three. Ralph is Brian. I can only assume that it would be them. Again, we're back to a foreign locale. Yeah, there's a neat circle being complete at the end of this series that they're going away again. That's quite nice. And. Oh, maybe, yeah, maybe that, that is actually the ending. It's not really there's going to be a third series. It's just the way that it's staged, the way that it ends with a shot of the parents. It doesn't end with a shot of Ralph and Brian in the car laughing at each other, saying, Dover, here we come. That would have been convincing as right, that's the end, whereas just somebody going blimey and then pow, end credits. It just leaves the, the note hanging in the air oddly. Actually, one thing that, it's not true to say it wasn't at all, but it wasn't as big an issue as I really thought it was going to be. Brian is not a salesman, and he is never going to be a successful sales rep in the mould of Ralph without some huge personality transplant. It's just not his way. It's not his nature. Now, if he's able to sort of build upon that impression that he makes on the buyer in the penultimate episode for being just a straight facts and figures guy and so on, if he was to develop that sort of rep, then that could probably do him some good as opposed to, you know, like the bullshitters that they're, they're used to dealing with. But I really thought that that was going to be a bigger feature of Series 2, that Ralph has talked Brian into taking up this position which he's completely unsuitable for. And, yeah, that's not really a big issue. It starts off by being an issue. But over time, I mean, we never really see The Office again. We never really see any of the other sales reps or anything like that at all. So it's eventually sort of Brian becomes more Ralph's sort of right-hand man, the sort of admin guy. Which is really how he gets the job, though, isn't it? Because of something that happens at the beginning of Series 2 and Ralph says to his boss, I'm going to need somebody to help me out with this because there's been a sudden expansion in business. Thanks to another bit, actually, where we find out that Ralph, no, he is genuinely good at his job. Somebody mentions something to him. And he says, oh, yeah, sorry, I put together a package for that. Ralph thinks that the guy wants him to open up emotionally, but it's like, no, we were talking about packaging, and he's got the numbers. He is genuinely good at his job. He's not just had good fortune. You ask him for a package, and he will come up with it. So the other one, do we give it our lost classic thumbs up? Yes, I think so. No, I... Very much enjoyed this series, and I sort of, in a way, I expected to enjoy it, and so I wasn't disappointed, that was nice. But also, yeah, it kept me guessing throughout, but I didn't feel as if I was being 
swerved at any point. So yeah, it was a really, really engaging little story. I don't have any problem with the ending as far as I didn't think that it was like a cop out or anything like that. It sort of makes sense in a way. There has to be some sort of driving factor behind why Ralph is bloody awful as he is. There's got to be something. And so it's nice that it's not eventually put down to like just one single incident or, or something like that. You know, when we actually get a glimpse of his home life, you can see how bloody awful it is. Yeah, of course he wants to escape from it. So it's just Is that a cliffhanger or is that a very weirdly staged proper ending? I'm actually going to say that's a proper ending. Weirdly staged then, that's all I'm saying. We just needed that last shot of Brian and Ralph looking at each other and the car zooming off. Yeah, that'd be nice, but... Uh... I think you're right. I think that there could have been a third series of it, but this is not a Mulberry situation where there was supposed to be a third series. It can end at the end of series two. Hmm. So that's it for this season. It is indeed. Yes, indeed. And we are now, I think we're around about something like 85 or so podcasts altogether in the archive, so there's plenty there. If you've not Oh, that's including this... Jaffa Cakes and oh, the I, Summer yes, Recess, yes. Yes, yes, indeed. We just had Jaffa Cakes last week, in case you haven't heard it. We're not taking a break from Jaffa Cakes. That should still be going out monthly. We might be doing a little music show just to stretch the brand beyond breaking point so that you're really tired of us. Pure vanity. Yeah, you're going to see merchandise on the shelves of Home Bargains, and you'll think, my God. God, when are they going to stop? Anyway, if you weren't with us all the way back in April 2013, then every single podcast that we have done, they're all available to listen to at sitcomclub.com. You can also hear them at podnose.com as well. You can hear them on SoundCloud, so you can load up with the app, which I presume that there is, and you can hear them all there. And the aforementioned podnose.com, there's lots and lots of other podcasts on there. So even though we're not going to be around during the summer, there's plenty of other listening you'll find on there instead. In the meantime, Ocho, goodbye. I am Hey Home and Can't Go, and you have been listening to The Sitcom Club.